as I learned my first day as a coach, what you emphasize, you get. And if you narrow the goals that you have and return clearly to the defined task, it's amazing what can be accomplished. Whether or not opposition is going to come is not the question. The question is, how are you going to handle the opposition when it comes? If you don't have external opposition, you're not doing anything. So plan on it. Expect it. Embrace it. How was the Word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the Word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's Word and apply it to your life. In Context. Welcome to Michael Easley in Context. My name is Hannah Seymour, your co-host, and I am here with Michael Easley himself. So, Dad, we started a series a few weeks ago called The Leadership Process, taking a look at Nehemiah. Where are we headed today? We're going to see how Nehemiah, an extraordinary leader, takes two things. He looks at God's hand, the good hand of God, along with his strategic planning. So if we could put that together for our ears, when you have a good plan, how do you execute it believing God's hand is in your leadership? All right. Well, let's take a look at Nehemiah chapter 2. And it came about in the month of Nisan. Now, just FYI, that's four months after chapter 1, the month of Kislev. So we get a neat time stamp in the book of Nehemiah. Now it came about in the month of Nisan. In the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, wine was brought before him, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in the king's presence. So the king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. We get a fascinating glimpse into our hero leader, Nehemiah. He's now had four months between the announcement of the disarray, the disbursement of the people, the destruction of the wall, and what it's going to take to rebuild that. He's prayed this magnificent prayer asking for God's favor. He's told us he's the cupbearer to the king. Now we're brought in real time. He's in front of Artaxerxes. And he's going to ask something that is, we might say, the request of his lifetime. Now, when you're in the service of a king, you don't wear your emotions on your sleeve. When you go to your boss, the owner, someone to whom you're accountable to, you don't go in there with a sad face. You clean up, you put on your best clothes, you put a smile on your face, you go to work. It would be a breach of etiquette in some respects. And So we're seeing a picture of Nehemiah as this tough guy who we might say is a little depressed the way he looked. He writes he was very much afraid. Interesting, isn't it? Perhaps Nehemiah is recalling the failure of rebuilding the wall back in Ezra's time. Artaxerxes had stopped the process in those chapters. But Nehemiah also might have had in mind Proverbs 16. The fury of a king is like messengers of death, but a wise man will appease it. In the light of the king's face is life, and his favor is like a cloud with the spring rain. In other words, Nehemiah going to Artaxerxes with a bad report could literally cost him his life. Verse 3, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed with fire? Not unlike Esther, Nehemiah had the wisdom to present the news as a personal blow. He talks about how it affected him. He introduced the subject sensitively and personally, not politically. My face, my father's tombs. Now listen to verse 4. Then the king said to me, What would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Gotta love it. 
The king is teed up. He's been pulled in. In God's great sovereign kindness, he didn't hammer Nehemiah. He didn't send him out. What would you request? And you got to love, I pray to the God of heaven. Now, if you have been reading Nehemiah or listened to our last broadcast, you'll remember back in chapter 1, verse 11, he prayed, Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servant who delights to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man, this man referring to Artaxerxes. So after the four-month interim, when he finally has the audience with the king, he again prays to the God. Do you have those times when you're walking into a situation and you just, you know, it might be as simple as, Dear Jesus, help me right now. I prayed to the God of heaven. Verse 5, I said to the king, If it please the king, if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. The king said to me, With the queen sitting beside him, How long will your journey be? When will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. And I said to the king, If it please the king, let letters be given to me for governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city of the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me, because the good hand of my God was upon me. There's a time to report, there's a time to ask, and we see both of these in Nehemiah's story. He got to love his approach to the king, if it please the king, allow me, allow me to pass. There's an appeal here, and I love this phrase so much, the good hand of my God was upon me. We've seen this before in chapter 1, verse 10, by your strong hand. And we're going to see it twice in chapter 2. 2, verse 8, the good hand of my God was upon me. In verse 18, I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me. So hang on to those as we continue looking at this passage. Let me interject here. We've heard before the phrase, there's no such thing as a fearless leader. This is a good time to unpack that a little bit because Nehemiah is afraid when he goes in front of the king. Again, it's hard for us to understand his context, but he could have been killed. He could have been removed from his position and killed on the whim of a king. Now, you're going to find the terms fear and awe related no less than 10 times in the book of Nehemiah. And it's a good sidebar study for you to take a look at. We tend to see this Nehemiah as fearless, but on several occasions, he's quite frightened. In fact, we might say he's terrified. You know, it always strikes me if you read through the story of Joshua how many times God told him to be strong and have courage. We've got songs about it. We talk about people having strength and being courageous. Does it occur to you you don't tell someone who's strong and courageous to be strong and courageous? You tell someone who feels weak and afraid to be strong and courageous. So every time you read that in the book of Joshua, let me seed the thought in your brain Joshua was terrified, and he felt weak. More importantly, what does that mean to you and me? Many times in our Christian life, we're weak, we're tremulous, we're afraid, we kowtow, we back down, we don't say things because we're afraid and we feel weak. One of the core aspects of a Christian leader is to find that strength and find that courage. Now, let me add, it's not just mustering up a bravado. We find courage in Christ. You and I want a Christ confidence, not self-confidence. We want Christ's courage, not self-courage. And it's your position, my position in Christ, that enables us to be strong in the Lord, to be courageous in the Lord. 
Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, for consider your calling, brethren, not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are. Listen, so that no man may boast before God. It's a good lesson, a good sidebar for you and me that to have strength and courage in the midst of being quite frightened is a normal and healthy thing and puts us in a posture of trusting Christ. Secondly, I'm impressed by the brevity and the precision of Nehemiah's requests and the responses he gets. Nehemiah is devastated. During the four months, he has time to think precisely about what he asks. How many times do you have a meeting with someone and they come in with this arsenal of a long, emotional, verbose request or whatever? They can't quite land the plane. Or more pointedly, how often do you and I do that? Sometimes those of us who are verbal processors are pretty poor at being brief and precise in our requests. Give you a little insight on Michael and Cindy in our marriage relationship. There are many times Cindy will come to me uh, with a problem or a question, or she'll be talking about her day. And I learned years ago uh, to listen carefully, but let's just be candid and frank. Sometimes we don't listen to our spouses as well as we probably should, right? We're selfish, sinful people. Land the plane, honey. What do you really want? And one of the things I've learned is to ask the simple question, Honey, do you want me to listen and process with you, or do you want suggestions? And you know what she's going to say more times than not. I just want you to listen with me and process with me, which is not my nature. At the same time, I can come to her, and I can talk all over the place and be emotional and spun up and angry. I'm not brief. I'm not precise. I'm not clear. It's helpful whenever we think of leadership as a process to be clear, to be precise, to be brief in what we want, what we need, and what we're asking of others. A couple of other leadership observations about the process of leadership. Number one, proper realization of prayer and patience. Again, don't miss this. Four months transpired from the time he heard the news to the time he's in front of the king with the question and opportunity to answer it. Secondly, he's faithful at work even when he's discouraged. Don't miss it. Nehemiah has been thinking and planning and processing even though he's sad in front of the king. I don't think this was a pretense before Adderxerxes. I don't think he comes before the king with this trumped up sullen look making himself look depressed i think he's afraid and he's fearful he admits he's afraid and he's discouraged still but even in that distraught nature four months of process he shows up to work he's doing his job at his best and he's thinking about what to do given the opportunity well from this we got to look at this phrase the good hand of my God was upon me. Again, no less than three times in the story. How do you know when the good hand of God is upon you? The whole interview gives me the impression that Nehemiah has these internal qualities that won him the right to speak. And when he was given the opportunity, I would suggest it was the history, the character, the kind of person he was that showed him favor with the king. Said simply, God used Nehemiah in front of a pagan king. Nehemiah is a great illustration of the balance between confidence and sovereignty. He's a great illustration of a man who knew his limitations. He's human, he's afraid, he's discouraged, but he also has confidence if he follows God's will and submits to God's sovereignty. Maybe God will use him. That's a good lesson for you and me. 
to be dependent upon God to do something you and I can't otherwise do, but to have the courage to run the risk to ask God to use you. That's a sense of God's hand. Well, now that we see Nehemiah muster up the courage, even though he's discouraged and afraid, to talk to the king, the king grants him what he asks, and again, the good hand of my God was on me, but that feeling doesn't last very long. Right away, he's going to face some opposition. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 9. Then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Remember, those were the letters he asked for permission to have passage, to go to the king's forest and get timber and supplies. Remember? Then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river. I gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. So don't miss the picture. He's got a nice entourage there supporting him. Verse 10. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, the officials heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. So now the chapter changes in tone. He's had the courage to ask for the king's assistance. Artaxerxes has granted him all he's asked for. Not long after, he still has opposition breathing down his neck. In fact, we might say this welcome turns to opposition very quickly. Sanballat and Tobiah are going to throw a long shadow over the story, so says Derek Kidner. Both of them are powerful, and they're related to the high priest family. They also have outside influence. Now, if we go outside the Bible, we call this extra-biblical sources. Outside the Bible, we find out a lot about Sanballat. He was the governor of Samaria. He was the leader of a powerful group of Arab communities. Tobiah was probably the governor of Ammon. Now, for skeptics of the Bible, this gives reliability to the story. Those of us who believe the Bible don't really need that, but it does substantiate history for the person who has doubt about the scripture. Verse 10, the word displeasure is an interesting verb. It's the same verb we read in Jonah chapter 4 verse 1 where it displeased Jonah and he became angry. Now, these neighbors are hostile. Uh, their nations of the Samaritans and the Ammonites are not friendly toward Jerusalem. As we continue the narrative in chapter 2, verses 11 and following, we get a survey of what Nehemiah is going to do. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. I arose in the night. And I, with a few men with me, did not tell anyone what my God was putting in my mind to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. In other words, he's not bringing a huge entourage. This is a this is a under the cover of the night, kind of like a covert recon. The Nehemiah is going under the cover of night with minimal people to get a good look at what is needed. Verse 13, so I went out by night by the valley gate in the direction of the dragon's well onto the refuse gate, inspecting the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down. And the gates were consumed by fire. I passed to the fountain gate, the king's pool, but there was no place for my mount, his horse, to pass. So I went up by night, by the ravine, I inspected the wall, I entered the valley gate, and returned again. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I'd done, nor had I yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, or the officials, or the rest of the nobles who did the work. Then I said to them, You see the bad situation we are in. Jerusalem is desolate. Its gates are burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, so that we will no longer be a reproach. I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me. Remember that word, hand? And about how the king's word which he had spoken to me. Then they said, Let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the work, to the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official 
and Geshem, the Arab, heard about it, they mocked us and despised us and said, What is this thing you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven will give us success. Therefore we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion, right, or memorial in Jerusalem. So what we're getting here is a picture of Nehemiah's route. He goes around the city. He goes to the valley gate, the jackal wall, the dung gate, the potsherd gate, the fountain gate, the king's pool. He's getting a survey of the land. British scholar Kathleen Kenyon's excavations in the 1960s suggest the spill of rubble was so large that Nehemiah could not have crossed it. So Nehemiah exposes the negative, the bad situation, the report he's given. And this first invitation is for him given now to others. Come, let us rebuild. Verse 17 ought to be circled in your Bible. It's the first call to action. Everything else has been internal. It's been with Artaxerxes. It's been in Nehemiah's heart. He's gone under the cover of night to check things out. And then when he grabs the officials and nobles all together, you see the bad situation in Jerusalem. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. What a call. As soon as he does it, opposition is breathing down his neck. Essentially, they're encircled by hostile neighbors. But Nehemiah is confident that the God of heaven will give him success. Well, let's take a stab at five lessons from this chapter. Number one, a litmus test for a good plan. Who is it for? Verse 12, what God put into my mind to do for Jerusalem. Too often our planning is self-centered. It's self-promoting. It's about our business plan, our vision, our passion, our dreams. And certainly we don't want to toss all that out, but it's a good refining point to ask, who is this plan ultimately for? Is it for me or is it for God? At the end result, if we achieve the plan, who does the credit go to? Does it go to God? Does it go to self? Does it bring attention to us as leaders? I think it's a good reminder for believers that we're to glorify God and bring attention to his name, not merely that he uses us, which is a good thing, but it's about his plans, his goals, glorifying him, not merely what we'd like to do. Secondly, godly planning counts the cost. Godly leadership requires a breadth and depth of unveiling a plan. Luke chapter 14, verses 28 and following, explain clearly counting the cost. This means careful timing. Again, his four months of planning. He also knew the details before he asked Artaxerxes or the nobles to help him. He also had a first-hand account of the situation. Sometimes we need boots on the ground. We need to go in and look at what we're up against before we say, this is what the budget's going to be. This is what the plan will require. Counting the cost involves good first-hand knowledge and good skillful scheduling. Thirdly, Godly leadership, the process, presents the plan to others well. In a very simple sentence, he says, you see the bad situation we are in. Jerusalem is desolate. Its gates are burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall. Pretty succinct, crisp, clear. Their home is destroyed. Let's go and repair the wall of Jerusalem. One of the leadership books I've been reading of late talks about the lack of clarity that many leaders are not clear in what they're asking their people to do it's a good reminder from nehemiah's lips how succinctly and clearly he's issuing a plan let's rebuild the wall of jerusalem fourthly there are battles in leadership now i'm going to suggest there are at least four battles that every leader is going to face in this process number one a battle within we have doubt, we have fear, we're impatient, we feel unqualified, or we might feel overconfident and a little too proud, a little too cocky on what we can actually do. So there's the battle with self. Secondly, there's a battle with the mission. 
in the leadership process what's possible and impossible. How much is it going to cost? What's the timetable? Every one of us who's been involved with any type of planning has people with whom we work that will say, well, it's going to cost more. That's not enough. We need to do this. We might plan and an engineer comes along and says, nope, it's got to be this much more design. There's always going to be battles with the mission. Thirdly, you're going to battle those you lead. There are people on your staff, people who work for you, people you hire, people you work alongside with who will always have a different opinion. I think it was Peter Drucker that said, most people who complain are really saying, why didn't you ask my opinion earlier? The process of leadership includes bringing people along with you, asking for opinions, and you're going to battle those you lead. But a good leader knows how to diplomatically and clearly explain what the goal is. And the fourth battle with the leadership process is with the opposition, with the enemy. I find it striking, surprising, and yet not so much. Every time something good begins to happen in the book of Nehemiah, and in fact, throughout many stories in Scripture, opposition is right at hand. It shouldn't surprise us that we're going to face those battles in leadership. Well, finally, fifth and last, a lesson from chapter 2. Never forget, or if you're an optimist, always remember God's hand in your life. It takes discipline to go back and look at how God has brought you to this place. It takes discipline to remind yourself of the blessings that he has done thus far. Sure, we're going to have trouble in life. Yes, we get fixated on the problem in front of us, the challenge in front of us, the people in front of us, the money needs. We all are that with human nature. We get obsessed with the thing in front of us. But the failure to look back and see how God has led to this time. Nehemiah heard a report. Four months later, he's got the king's permission to go do what he wanted to do. Did he think there would be no trouble along the way? No opposition along the way? I wonder how many times he looked back and remembered what he told them. The good hand of God is upon him. And you know the good hand of God is on your life as you walk in faith. Well, those are some really compelling and convicting principles, at least for me, thinking about the litmus test for a good plan. Who is it for that godly planning counts the cost, godly leadership presents the plan well. I could go on, but I think those three kind of wrapped together are really interesting, Dad. You had a conversation with Coach Les Steckel, and he talked about this in a really unique way, but uh, give us a little bit. Who is Coach Les Steckel? Well, he was the NFL head coach for the Minnesota Vikings in 1984, but he's probably better known for all of his assistant coach roles with the 49ers, the Patriots, the Broncos, the Houston Oilers, the Titans, the Buffalo Bills, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. He also served as the CEO and president of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, FCA, for about a dozen years. Just an all-around ball of energy in his 70s. And uh, we had a great conversation with him talking about how he would coach and work, especially with these players that are some of the most extraordinary athletes on the planet. Yeah. So in thinking about how Nehemiah has to present the plan well, he's devised this very strategic plan about how he's going to rebuild the wall in a certain amount of time with certain resources. And Coach Steckel talks about devising a very different but still succinct plan on how to coach his NFL players for victories. So let's listen in on his thoughts on having clearly communicated plans. I think about my coaching career and I've been on several teams as a young coach and I'd see what it takes to win and there were 20 things by Vince Lombardi and I just uh, couldn't believe it. One day I asked John Elway after a two-minute drive, he was famous for that with the Denver Broncos, did you think of all 20 of those things? He said, coach, I didn't think of one because I don't listen to all that. I just need a few things to think about and when he said that, I took the ball and ran with it the rest of my career. And I just had four simple things that I tried to emphasize with the players. And each meeting, I said, okay, so-and-so, please stand up. Like Bruce Matthews, who played for us with the Tennessee Titans, Hall of Fame player. 
Bruce, would you please tell us uh, what's those four things that are going to take to win the AFC Central and get us to the Super Bowl? Coach, zero turnovers. Two penalties or less. Score 100% of the time in the green zone. We called it the green zone, not the red zone, because I go to stoplights all the time, and red says stop, green says go. And then lastly, to be the most physical offense in the league. And every single day, we would have someone on our team stand up and repeat those four things. Well, after a while, as I learned my first day as a coach, what you emphasize, you get. And if you narrow the goals that you have and return clearly to the defined task, it's amazing what can be accomplished. Well, I just love Coach Steckel's simplicity in defining four things that he had his players memorize and repeat probably on a daily basis and makes me wonder how vital and important that might be for folks like you and me and others to define four goals that we need to accomplish every single week or every month in our work or what that looks like. And um, interestingly, you also had a very similar conversation with Dave Ramsey on this. Let's talk about clearly defined tasks and returning to those. So Nehemiah starts out with a planning process that really is phenomenal because he's prayed, he's researched, he knows what to ask. He's waited for the tee up when the king finally says, what's wrong with your countenance? It's almost like he has, here's a strategic plan that I need funded and enabled, and would you help me? And yet during the opposition, the starts and stops, these things press in, and he has to recalibrate not only his own message, but to the people he's leading to say, we've got to return to these clearly defined tasks. You've had to do that how many times over 25 years? Uh, Every 10 minutes. (laughs) Um, Because you're in your office. You know, it can be something as simple as you have a prioritized to-do list. And as soon as you start working on that, somebody leaning in the door with a coffee cup going, we got a problem. And they're bringing you the fire and hoping you're the fireman. One of the things we teach people is how to go solve their own problems so that they're not leaning in my door with a coffee cup, you know, that you're here to solve problems, not bring them to me. And I'm not the fireman. And so, uh, you know, we teach them the process to do that. But even if it is something that I need to stop my little to-do list, I need to stop my track and get off track and go over here because there's something that does need to be dealt with. Somebody that needs some help, somebody that's hurting, somebody that's, that's misbehaving or some situation, whatever it is. Then as soon as I finish that, what happens is, is I just wander off into the oblivion if I don't have something to go back to the task, back to the task. I got to have a, a magnet that draws me back, you know, with the compass, right back to true north, right back to true north, right back to true north. So even if you do have a little bit of a detour during the day, during the month, during the year, during the decade, at least you know where you're heading and you get back to the task. You know, I'm sick and I missed three of my classes in college. So what do you do? change schools and go to trade school? No, you go back to class and finish the course of study to get the degree you originally set out to do, and you make up that class that you lost when you were sick because you had a defined goal. When you don't have a defined goal, you just wander around in the fog. Why why are people so reticent to have a, I mean, you deal with people in budgets and the baby steps and so forth. Why is there such a resistance, not for everybody, but a large percentage of folks, they just can't write a goal down, Dave? It's intellectual laziness. Is, is what I think it is. We're just uh, entertained into oblivion. You know, we can watch an HBO rerun 47,000 times, see the same movie. We can do the exact script over and over and over. A complete waste of my life and my time, but we can. I've done it. Everybody's done it. If we don't watch our whole life gets caught up in these rat-in-a-wheel exercises where there's no traction toward a defined goal. The funny thing is, is that if you will ever start In any area of your life, your physical life, your marriage, your child raising, your business, your career, your money, um, if you will just write down and go, okay, 30 pounds in 90 days, that's 10 pounds a a month, that's two and a half pounds a week, increase the water, decrease the sugar and bread. As soon as you start doing that, maybe you don't hit 30, maybe you hit 25, but you go, look what happens when I have a clearly defined goal. And as soon as you do that with your income, as soon as you do it with your monthly budget, I'm going to tell my money what to do. You have this sense of, I'm a grown-up. I do have control of my destiny. And and yeah, there's outside variables that impact me, knock me off course, and things I can't control. But there's a tremendous amount of my life that I can actually control if I will just bother to care where I'm going. Mm -hmm. I found it helps to be around like-minded people in the sense that there are other high-achieving people, people that have progress in their spiritual life. What I'm often looking for as I get older, who, who is ahead of me a decade who still loves Christ, 
who's still in the Word, who's still learning and growing. And I think you've said it this way, it's uh, in, in a group, the lowest denominator in the group affects everybody else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you want to be the other way around. You want to be the one that's learning from others who, I guess that probably is condemning. I'm probably the lowest common denominator <laughs> in the group a lot of times. And we all are. We, I hope I hope I get in a group occasionally right. that's that, uh, that, that I'm not just hanging out with people that I'm not the head of the thing. I think you said something there that's real key. You and I both hang out with, as personal friends, a lot of high-performance people. All high-performance people have clearly defined objectives in their lives. And the area of our lives that do not have that suffers. Mm. And every one of us has a little bit of a weakness here or there on one of those. You know, I've got, I wish I could do a little better on that. Well, it's because I don't have a clearly defined objective that's pestering me. Because once you write that down, it pesters you Mm. To move toward it. It's got a gravitational pull to pull towards it, and it bothers you. In Habakkuk, it says, write the vision and make it plain. You know, write it out. Want to know what the vision is, because you're going to return to it. You cannot keep your eyes off of it once you wrote it down. Something happens when you write it down. Hannah, for many years, I traded a set of personal developmental goals with about four or five men. And I would do it over the Christmas break uh, between uh, semesters and between uh, just life when you had the, the week or so off between Christmas and New Year's. And I would review last year and I would look at this year. And those goals were <laughs> silly and uh, unachievable and all points mm-hmm. in between. And eventually, it took me several years, I got them down to where they, were, they didn't change much. And under each goal, I had uh, some verses and some key reminders, and I would trade them. And there was one guy in particular named Ned who was very faithful at praying for me, so we'd trade our goals. And I remember one Christmas, we would we'd get on the phone, and we would talk about our goals. And he would put percentages besides his on how he <laughs> felt he'd accomplished those goals. Wow. And so it made me feel guilty, so I had sure. to do the same thing, right? <laughs> so, and uh, But randomly, he called me and said, how are you doing on this goal? How are you doing on that goal? And he wasn't there to, you know, catch me. He was there to encourage me. Yeah. And one year, I'll never forget, he, he said, you know, you're kind of a self motivated self-disciplined guy you get things done you can read x amount of books a year uh i want you to think about setting goals that only god could accomplish in your mm-hmm. life and that was a real turning point for me in writing something down like david said um you can write down we want to do x widgets or sell this much or make this much sure. or whatever and and those can be attainable but when you write down something like, I want a non-anxious presence, mm-hmm. I want to be more compassionate, I want to be more patient with people that I am impatient with, I want to share the story of Christ with a number of people this year and, and do it well enough and consistently enough that they have to respond. Mm-hmm. When you write something that's a little more than just self-discipline and yeah. working hard, it opens the opportunity for you to see God work in your life. So just as a final thought, when you're planning, when you're communicating clearly and concisely what you want of people, uh, maybe an ancillary lesson here is what do you want God to do in your life? Mm-hmm. And what are things that only can be measured by God, not by your self-determination or hard work certainly god uh, allows us to put our shoulder to the wheel but if he doesn't do it it's hard to be non-anxious yeah and so those are good thoughts at least for me to process through what it means as a leader to write down things and prayerfully put them before the lord and see that good hand of god work in your life man i love that and another thing that really hit me from your five principles that you took from Nehemiah chapter two was this idea of Nehemiah was going to face opposition and any leader doing anything really is going to be facing opposition. And so again, to jump back to a conversation you had with Dave, you asked him, I mean, certainly Dave, we know you have faced opposition. What does that look like? (laughs) So let's jump into that conversation right now. When Nehemiah is building this wall, he's going to face two kinds of opposition, internal and external. Sanballat, others are going to threaten to him and, and send these, these rumors of your building project stinks, it's going to fall over, it's going to collapse. But then he also has internal opposition. 
when I used to do pastor's workshops, I had this axiom. I would tell pastors, beware the wagon that meets the train. Because in the first 18 to 24 months, and ultimately in your termination, the people that probably greeted you are probably going to be the ones that are going to pose you most, you know, forcefully, and maybe the ones that show you the door. So let's talk about you as a leader from early days into today, and some of the opposition you faced, how you've addressed it, maybe some ways you've done it poorly, and ways you've learned to do it more effectively. My personal uh, strengths and weaknesses are I deeply value integrity and I deeply value loyalty. For that, it means I am, to a sick degree, loyal. I am, to a sick degree, fanatically integral. And then I have that expectation here, too. And so one of the fastest ways for me to lose it in the old days was if someone was disloyal. I can't handle it because I, I not only give it, but I expect it. For me, when I'm paying you, and then you're running down me or the organization, to me, that's a thief. That's how extreme redneck hillbilly I am about it. I mean, it's, and so that's how I did it wrong was because I, I just didn't react well out of that value system gone toxic <laughs> kind of thing. And, and so I've had to learn to temper that and, and yet still retain the good parts of that because that's, that is also truth and you want to line up with that. So I, I just expect that here in a much kinder, gentler tone now. I still don't tolerate a lack of it. Mm-hmm. We don't in this organization. We expect that of each other in leadership. We expect a trust level that I got your back. Uh, we don't need any etu brute around here, you know. And within a team, within your own leadership team, though, there I hope there are people that have strong enough backbones to say, Dave, I disagree with you on that's this. That's different than disloyal. Okay. You'd be disloyal to not disagree with me okay. if I was wrong and you thought I was wrong. So we fight all the time around here. Well, and, and we welcome the conflict. That's awesome. That's to your face, and that's a healthy methodology. But the people that are circling around behind and cutting your legs out from under you, the gossips, and the ones that don't have uh, the backbone to sit down and take you on straight on, listen, I, I relish conflict. It's where most of our creativity comes from around here. We invite it. We try to create situations that cause it in a healthy way. We're not yelling at each other, cussing each other, something like that. But, I mean, we like to argue because it means we both care. And uh, that's a good thing. That's a healthy type of conflict. It moves things forward. But the unhealthy conflict is when you have this internal opposition that is political. It's toxic. It's destructive. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's self-serving usually. It's self-aggrandizing for the person that's doing it. We require, as a condition of employment, that we're all on the same page that we're all unified. Not that we're all the same, not that we can't argue, not that we can't disagree, but at the end of the day, when we all finish, we, we all decide together what we're going to do. I, I very seldom drop the hammer and go, I'm doing this regardless of what everybody else says. I, it's almost never. We get a consensus and everyone else says, okay, if everybody else is in, I'm in. But if not, let's keep polishing this. Let's keep rubbing on it. So talk to the, the young leader or the leader that maybe is not good at dealing with opposition in his or her organization. What would you say to encourage them? Because some people don't like conflict. You you and I are familiar with the DISC and some Mm -hmm, of these mm -hmm. profiles, and some are conflict-averse. And uh, they may find themselves managing or leading, and they've got a huge tension, keeps them awake at night. Yeah. Here's the thing. You're going to deal with the conflict, or it's going to deal with you. And uh, if you are 100% conflict-averse, you don't need to be leading. Now, you don't have to eat conflict for breakfast like I do. Uh, I'm a talk radio host. It's it's a spiritual gift. Okay, that's a different thing, right? You don't have to go to that extreme. But you do. People who don't are, are what Bible are, are you reading, by the way? <laughs> are, that's in the second hesitation, Chuck. And so, but if you absolutely cannot do conflict, you're going to get run over, and you you don't have the capacity to lead, and you need to step back. Is there a fulcrum for you that says, okay, that opposition, even though, man, Dave. They've got this idea, I want it, I'm going to fight for it, but there's opposition that is still right in your face. Where's the fulcrum or the tipping point that says, I know this is right? Well, the deeper the relationship is and the longer you've been walking with the people, you put three or four of them in a room and the multitude of counsel, there's safety. You'll listen. You don't get into groupthink then because these are people with backbone. Uh, now, if you don't have backbone, they get into groupthink and you got a political toxic mess going on. Well, that's not what I'm talking about. But, but if you got people there... And like three of my leaders sit down with me and go, look, you said let's do this and we'll go with you on it if it's what you want to do. We got your back, but 
Dave, we got this problem, and we got this problem, and then we got this problem. We need to tap the brakes on this and think, rethink it. We need to maybe go to the left instead of the right, or the right instead of the left, or whatever it is. And, and a leader that doesn't listen to that is going to lose his team because they're, they're, they don't have anybody else in there that has dignity. They lose the, you strip their dignity out. And so you have got to build a band of brothers that have the backbone to speak and that you trust what they're saying, their wisdom. You trust that they care about the outcome the same as you. We're all just trying to win the game. It's not a political thing. It's not a, I need to get credit for this or it's that kind of thing. When you smell that kind of stuff, then you just strip those out. Mm-hmm. If I were in a church, uh, I'm not for obvious reasons. I'm not pastoral. But I would be the kind of pastor, and there are a few of them around, that would invite some people to go to another church because dissensions just drive me nuts. Mm -hmm. And I would say, you know what? This place might not be for Mm -hmm. you. And we live in Nashville. There's a church on every corner. You can can love Jesus somewhere else, and I'll still love you. (laughs) And uh, But, dude... You can't be running around hauling this this manure in your wheelbarrow around the back of the sanctuary every day, every Sunday morning. And it just people, there are people that do that stuff and they're small minded yep. and they get into companies, they get into churches, they get into church staff, they get into everything. And, you know, you have to know that that internal opposition is there. And if you don't deal with it, it doesn't do anything but grow. What you need to know when you're running an organization is nothing is moved unless it's shoved. And when it's shoved, there's always friction. You're always pushing in. If you're not pushing in, you're not preaching well, you're not discipling well, and it is inherently uncomfortable to be preached to or to be discipled well because it touches you in places you don't want to be touched. And so if you're not getting some of that from the external, if you're not making people uncomfortable, not mad, not just not trying to create a problem, that's mm-hmm. not what I'm saying, but inherent in change is friction and the the christian walk is all about change it's all about the sanctification process the discipling process with us and so our job as spiritual leaders is to create an environment of that change so with that comes opposition a hundred percent of the time and let me help you the more volume you're doing the more there's going to be a volume right of opposition our friends our mutual friend stephen mansfield says the larger your spotlight the more points of darkness it touches the circumference gets larger and so the bigger our thing has gotten the crazier some of the people out there have got. we found more crazies than we used to find i mean the opposition is real and it's weirder and weirder and weirder the larger you get you know when it was just six people you could kind of deal with them you know but when it's eight million it's like gee, some of these people need to be in a room you know and so but that opposition out external if you don't have external opposition you're not doing anything so plan on it expect it embrace it uh, and, and relish in it in, in that sense. Now, again, don't be, I'm not being masochistic and saying be sick and go create problems. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying to think that everyone's going to love you is ludicrous. Well, the presumption is you're doing something, that you're doing the right thing. You're not just doing some megalomaniac thing that you want to achieve and accomplish. You're doing exactly. a good and right thing. Because yeah. we do have leaders that are bulldog tenacious and are wrong, and it's all about them. And you can do the right thing the wrong way. Absolutely. And, you know, you can do all of that. And I'm not trying to, th- those are all negative things. That, that's not opposition. That's correction and criticism. But opposition is just somebody that wants to take you down just because you're there, you know. And that occurs yeah. more times than we like to think it does. Well, you also continue the same conversation with Janet Parshall. And she makes a point that I love where she says, it's not whether opposition is going to come. It's how are you going to handle it when it comes? <laughs> so she had some great thoughts on this, and let's listen to that. You know, there's an old saying that if you decide to stand up for something, you have, in essence, put a target on your back. If you decide to stand up particularly for the most argumentative issue in the world, which is the power and the authority of the cross, in a post-culture, in a post-Christian world, you're absolutely positively going to garner opposition. So then you have to make a personal choice. Whether or not opposition is going to come is not the question. The question is, how are you going to handle the opposition when it comes? So you have to decide whether or not being accepted, being included, being affirmed, transcends and supersedes understanding that the truth was never ours in the first place, but his. 
we fractured, flawed earthen vessels have been given this unbelievable opportunity to proclaim his truth. Now, if I were God, I wouldn't do it that way because, well, I would be thinking these mortals would mess up all the time. But for whatever reason, our great king gives us the opportunity to go out and speak his word. Being in Washington, D.C., I'm here to tell you that opposition is commonplace for those of us who align ourselves with a suffering Savior. But then again, if you go back and you read the word, that also shouldn't come as a surprise. So the question before us is not whether opposition will come, but whether or not when it does come, we will continue to stand winsomely and boldly for his truth. How do you know when the opposition comes that you and I aren't just being obstinate or stubborn Hmm. to a point and it's, it's a good thing? That is an excellent question. Every time I have experienced opposition, what I do is I ask myself first and foremost, as I stand in front of my spiritual mirror, did I get in the way? Did I forget my responsibility as ambassador? We know in Washington, D.C., there's this gorgeous row of buildings on what's called Ambassador Row. And all of these flags stand outside these buildings, and all of these ambassadors come to bring their values to bear on American public policy. It's the same thing as being an ambassador for Christ. We bring our values values to bear on a culture that's lost and desperately in need of Jesus. If I've gotten in the way of the job of being an ambassador, it's my fault. I have to make sure that I don't besmirch this high calling, this glorious position of being an ambassador, not because it has anything to do with me, but because of who it is I represent. First and foremost, I stand in front of my own spiritual mirror. Lord, did I mess up? If I did, forgive me. And boy, I have many an occasion. Then I've asked the Lord, and this is the tougher prayer, Give me another chance. Give me another opportunity. I can't tell you how many times I have met with people and messed it up and asked the Lord to give me another opportunity. You have to be real careful with that kind of a prayer because he's (laughs) faithful to give you more. (laughs) And I would just circle back and remind us of what Nehemiah said, how the good hand of God has been favorable toward him. He uses him perfect people and perfect leaders, leaders who make mistakes, who have poor judgment at times, but are you willing to repent, to humble yourself and come back? These principles don't change. How we respond to the situations that come our way, that's our opportunity for growth. And that's our opportunity to see God's good hand in our lives. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded from donations by our listeners. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation on our website? You can find us on michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters. <laughs>